We've heard it many times. Truth is stranger than fiction. But when trying to keep some semblance of normalcy and sanity in a world that continues to show us its more mysterious side, it might do us well to consider that truth includes a broad spectrum of experience, including possible interactions with human-looking extraterrestrials. Preeminent UFO researcher and historian Richard Dolan, whose painstaking research has culminated into several books, including UFOs and the National Security State Volumes 1 and 2 and AD, After Disclosure, took the time to depart from his usual fare and discuss some of the more perplexing and bizarre aspects of the UFO story. Except none of these incidents involve UFOs per se, but rather ET encounters of the humankind. Take a listen. All right, Richard, it is story time. <laughs> but these, <laughs> the stories that you're about to tell are not your grandmother's stories. These are not the usual fare. These are extraordinary accounts that you've agreed to share with our audience, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm calling this E.T. Encounters of the Humankind. You know, you've set a precedent, many know, for your impeccable research into the government's possible longstanding cover-up of the UFO ET phenomenon. And you've consistently called the act of disclosure, I love this, the great paradox, impossible but inevitable. Mm. Where I certainly want to spend a little bit of time uh, before we close out discussing this part of your work. Today, I'd really like to focus on some of the stories that you've become aware of or have been told directly by the witnesses, the experiencers themselves, of human-looking beings who seem to be not so human. So, welcome, Richard. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Alexis. And um, wow, I really appreciated hearing you uh, talk about my work in, in from an outsider's perspective, I, 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 um, I'm very grateful for that. And, and um, I will say that it is very important for me to do all of my work in as careful and meticulous a way as I can. Um, <clears throat> my primary research, that of, of um, working with historical documents pertaining to UFOs, remains very, very important to me. And uh, especially in a field where there's so much controversy and so much debate and uh, obfuscation, I've always felt it's essential for us to have a, a firm foundation of facts that we can rely on. And for that reason, yes, it's very important for me to be able to work off of proven documents and the like in order to construct a narrative of the UFO phenomenon. Having said that, as you're referring to, over the years, over many years now, I've, uh, I've had conversations with individuals who have spoken to me about some very bizarre encounters that they've had in their life. This is a different type of evidence than, say, going into uh, an archive and pulling out a, you know, a defense intelligence agency document that talks about a UFO encounter. These are stories that people have. The thing is that what I've discovered is that there are many, many stories that are, I think, floating around our society that lots of people have about bizarre encounters that they've had in their life. In the cases of um, stories that have come to me, there's a certain consistency that a number of them have had, and that is encounters by individuals with, with people who look totally human mm -hmm. but have aspects about them that are not quite normal and that kind of seem almost superhuman, we might say, um, and, and, and not in a way that makes us feel at ease or happy to run into these people, incidentally. <laughs> uh, several of the stories that have come to me concern 
uh, a blonde male female couple that looks at basically like Scandinavian supermodels <laughs> in in places. But these are individuals who all seem to be very intensely telepathic. And I'll tell a couple of these stories. Please. The, f- the first such story that I um, encountered along these lines, I I heard from a retired United States Air Force colonel with a Ph.D. Uh, back in 2008 when he told this to me. I was in Las Vegas at an event. And um, this guy was uh, someone who I was introduced to at that conference as someone who was kind of important for my research. turns out he was important. Um, he had had his own very, very long history of UFO knowledge while in the Air Force back in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. He had done some uh, classified work on the B-2 stealth bomber, which he would not talk to me about. That was the one thing he would not get into. Mm-hmm. Um, had a long-standing knowledge and interest in the UFO phenomenon through his years in the Air Force, which was well known to his colleagues. Um, and I have to say, on a, on a personal basis, when I chatted with him, he's it was very engaging, very struck me as a very genuine man. I interviewed him and his wife at this particular event that I was at, and he said to me, after we talked about a number of other things that he'd learned while in the military about UFOs, and we can actually talk about that too. Uh But then he told me this bizarre personal story. He said, and actually, this is like the strangest thing that's ever happened to me, like ever. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, I was was with my wife, and she nodded, and she said, yeah, we were, uh, and with another friend of ours, a woman, at a Las Vegas casino. Uh And uh, we were just on some downtime having fun. And uh, he said we were on the second floor of this particular casino, and our our mutual friend, the woman, who he said was kind of like psychic, that's how he described her. And this is a, an, a man who is very open to the paranormal, very open to psychic phenomena. Despite being an Air Force colonel, you might think, you know, they're not. Well, he was. And as I said, he was a Ph.D. as well. Mm-hmm. He said, anyway, we're walking along the second floor, and my psychic friend grabbed me by the upper arm and stopped me. And she looked over in the direction of this strikingly beautiful blonde woman with this incredible blue outfit on. And she said, she's not like us. She's not one of us. Or or something to that effect, she said to him. Now, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's Las Vegas, and you, you get beautiful women in striking clothing wherever you go. And he said, yes, I realize that. He said, but this woman was different somehow. And the, uh, the friend and his wife both got nervous, and they both went down the escalator to get away from this beautiful woman who's standing probably <clears throat> 30, 40 feet away just by herself. So – they went down the escalator, and he's still standing there looking at this woman, and her back is partly toward him. And then he said to me, that's when I heard her in my mind. Mm. And the thought that I heard coming from her was something like like what you'd get from a police officer on the beat, like nothing to see here, keep it moving. She <laughs> said something like, there's nothing here for you, just keep moving along, go about your business. That was like this very powerful thought that came into his mind. And he was rather startled by this, as you might think. Moments later, she's joined by an equally beautiful blonde man wearing similarly beautiful blue clothing, like very striking. They're conversing together. He said they're obviously a couple. And uh, 
after a few minutes, they started walking toward the escalator where he near where he was standing, and he thought, "Good, when they come here, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to say something to them." And uh, he steals himself up for this moment. And instead of talking to them, though, they walk right by him. They go on the escalator and they start going down the escalator. So he thinks, damn it, I wanted to talk to them. He said, well, I, I'm going to get behind them. So he gets behind them on the escalator as they're all going down this escalator. At this point, his wife interjected in the story and she said, she was actually really funny. She was sweet. She said, oh, my God, we were so scared. My friend and I were peeking from behind the slot machine. <laughs> out. Yes, right. Looking at this couple coming down the escalator oh, wow. and him following. Um, and then he continues and he says, and as I'm going behind them on the escalator, I heard them thinking to each other. And the conversation was something like, Yes, he hears us. Yeah, he's no big deal. Ignore him. He's not part of any program. Just go. We'll just do what we're, we're doing, mm -hmm. essentially. They get to the bottom of the escalator, and they just walk off, and that's the last anyone sees of them. So the aftermath of this is about as interesting as the encounter. <clears throat> so the aftermath of it was the three of these people are conversing, and it turns out the psychic friend of theirs was also a hypnotherapist. And she, uh, they essentially come to the conclusion that she was going to regress this colonel so that he could more properly remember exact things that might have been thought, mm -hmm. you know, by this couple. And he's thinking, that's a good idea. So a couple of days later, like two days later, I believe, he's at her house. And this is in eastern California, uh, near Nevada, but not in Nevada. And she's in this cul-de-sac neighborhood, dead-end neighborhood, very quiet. So he's in her house lying down on a couch about to be regressed and as he's about to be regressed they start hearing construction sounds outside the house like jackhammers and construction machinery and the like they go outside and they find nothing they go back inside to do the regression again and once again the noise outside disrupts them and they this happens several times so much so that they decide well obviously we can't do the regression today he says but here's the good thing look i'm going to be back in town in about a month so how about i call you and um you know before i arrive and we can do it then she says great sounds good so a month goes by a day or two before he was about to meet her he calls her on the phone and says hey i'm going to be in town how about, are you still up for that regression? And she says, what What do you mean, regression? He says, well, we, we tried to do that regression last month. Don't you remember? She says, what? Regression? This woman had no memory of anything. Yeah. She had no memory of doing the regression. She had no memory of the encounter with the, uh, the blonde couple. None of that. It was like it did not happen. Wow. And, and they never followed up. So that's a very unsettling story. So the implication clearly is that Whoever was behind that encounter with those individuals, whoever they were, some agency um, did not want this regression to happen. And they were presumably trying to protect something. They Absolutely. wanted to stop it. Yeah. Now, two years after I got a story from this colonel, I was at a different conference in western Pennsylvania. So on really the other side of the country. Uh, <clears throat> this was in 2010. It was right after my book, A.D. After Disclosure, came mm -hmm. out. And I remember it very well. I had, it was the first time I had those books at an event. And I'm sitting at my table, and this woman and her husband come up to my table. And this, this woman, 
was uh, about 60 years old at the time. She looked like, you know, like a nice housewife, honestly. And her husband looked like a nice regular guy who, I don't know what his job was, but they were just good people. You'd probably be happy to have them as your neighbor. Mm -hmm. She said, well, I had a really strange thing happen to me back in 1965, and I'm wondering if I could tell you about it. And I said, yes, of course. I mean, this happens to me all the time when I'm at a conference. People tell me these strange things. (laughs) So... um, she said, well, it was 1965, I was about 15 years old, and um, I was in church with my mother here in western Pennsylvania in a tiny little town, and there's lots of tiny little towns in western PA, I've been there many times. Um, she said, where everyone in town knew everybody else, especially in church. So she's with her mother in church, and uh, she sits down in the pew, and right in front of her, this absolutely beautiful blonde couple sits in front of her and she said these she said you have to understand these people were not just attractive they were like beyond attractive they were like the most unbelievable supermodels mm-hmm. you could imagine and she said and their clothing was the most impeccable fine blue fabric i've ever seen in my whole life here like, we go I've with never, blue again yeah exactly right. <laughs> exactly wow and uh, being a teenage girl um she didn't say this but i assume i have a teenage girl uh, very knowledgeable about fashion, very interested in that sort of thing. So I think she was just transfixed sure. by this couple, like staring at them. And she said, and what amazed me was how like nobody else was looking at these people. It's as if they were just in there and, and they were the, the most obvious thing in this whole church was this blue couple, <laughs> this blue dressed blonde <laughs> couple that looked amazing. And why was I the only one noticing them? I didn't get that. So while she's saying, and she's watching them too, and like they obviously did not fit in. Like they didn't, it was a Catholic mass, and hmm. I grew up going to Catholic mass, and you know, you have to sit, kneel, you gesticulate, you do the sign of the cross, you do all of these things. And, and she said, like, I could tell they didn't know how to do it. Like they were looking around at everyone else and following along. This was like not something that they had grown up doing. Mm-hmm. And she said, as I was thinking this, I heard one of them thinking to the other. So again, and this is on the other side of the country, this woman had no idea who the colonel was, I, right. not, not a chance. She said, I heard them thinking to each other, and I heard one of them think to the other, well, it appears that we're fitting in pretty well here, or thoughts to that effect. And then she heard the other one thinking back, yes, except for the girl behind us who can hear us. <laughs> this is exactly what she told oh, me. Yeah. And at that point, her eyes got very large, and she was, she was scared, obviously, but she was also really intrigued. Um, after that, she heard nothing coming out of their minds. So my sense is that they somehow figured I had to shut it had down. Had to shut it down, right. 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 <clears throat> they go through the rest of the church service, and they're sitting kind of in the middle of this church. And at the end of the service, this couple gets up and out really fast, like very efficiently. They're just out. And um, and she gets it in her head that she's going to follow them. And she, she bolts out. And her mother, who was totally oblivious to the whole thing, as all parents typically are, <laughs> um, she says, you know, get back here, young lady. Where do you think you're going? Uh, but anyway, so she follows them out. So she goes to the front of the church and... She sees them, and they're across this parking lot, uh, 
and they're going qu- uh, quickly toward a um, like over this little hill, and she, she trots across there as fast as she she can, and then she sees them. They're going across this field um, toward like a wooded area, and she starts down the hill, and then she stops because she sees a third figure, and the third figure, uh, she said, scared her. And she said, do you remember Lurch from the Addams Family TV show? And I said, oh, yeah. Well, he looked just like that guy. Oh, wow. So he was very tall, uh, very pale, a black hat, black suit. And uh, that intimidated her. So she stopped. And she saw this blonde couple walk up toward the tall fellow into the woods. He turns around and he walked into the woods following them. And that was her story. Hmm. So, you know, there's no UFO associated with it, either of those two stories. But let's face it, they're very odd. Absolutely. They indicate, right, the presence of some other whatever that's, you know, what are these? What are these things? Right, Um, right. You know, I think there are a few elements to look at here. Those are two obviously very loaded stories. I want to add another one that I think you, Richard, might be familiar with, and that is the work of the great, late great, I should say, Ingo Swan. For anyone who can grab a copy of his book, Penetration, it is loaded with information, including a story that he tells. I'm going to just add this to the tapestry very briefly. He, uh, you know, obviously there's a whole whole spectrum of odd experiences, uh, uh, not the least of which is his encounters with a, a Mr. Axelrod. But um, in addition, he tells a story of being in a a grocery store. I think he was visiting some friends in Los Angeles and had planned a meal, the sumptuous meal to to, uh, try to entice some insiders, I think he knew, to get some more information about such matters that we're talking about. But as he's in this grocery store in Los Angeles, he, I think he's in the produce section where he runs across this very conspicuously beautiful, scantily clad woman wearing a halter, Short shorts, eight-inch yes. heels. You know what I'm talking about. Total knockout. That's total knockout. Ingo Swan, who was completely gay, didn't right. matter. He was like dro- magnetic. He was still drooling. Dro- Absolutely. Exactly. So he found himself drawn to stare at her, obviously. But as he got closer, he said that he literally went into a state of shock. Hair standing on in, on the end of his arm, goosebumps, dry throat, the whole nine. And yeah. then he had this realization, not a thought, but an absolute realization. Hell, she's an E.T., you know, there's more to the story, of course, but this kind of encounter, although we don't hear much about it, I have a feeling they're happening far more than we're certainly hearing on a regular basis. That, that yeah. story from Ingo Swan, that's a really good story. Isn't in fact, it? I yeah. wrote about it in uh, my second volume of UFOs, ah. the National Security State, and I think I gave a very good synopsis of that and other of Ingo's encounters, which are quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there is, as you say, there is more to that story. It's fascinating. He became absolutely convinced that she was not human, and he got a kind of confirmation right. about that from kind of a, a deep, um, a deep intelligence group that he was associating with at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all part of his story. And no, you're exactly right. Like he had to go near this woman, and uh, as he got close enough to her, he had this. It was a moment of terror, panic that seized him um, about right. that. There, I, have an, I have one other story. Like I've not. This is one that I've. I don't know if I've ever um, recounted publicly. I'll, okay. I will probably include this in a written book. Um, I'll, I'll certainly have this probably in volume three of UFOs and a National Security mm-hmm. State. When I finish that, and I may include it elsewhere. But this is a, a, a story that I received from a woman. I was giving a, a lecture in Iowa a number of years ago. 
after the lecture, another, you know, these people come up to me. This is a very soft-spoken, well-educated woman um, who told me that she'd never given the story out anywhere. Uh, and after you hear me telling it, you'll, you'll see why. Uh, she just didn't really know how to process this or what to do with it. But back in the spring of 1998, she said to me, she was a young college student in her early 20s. Her name is Lisa, by the way. Um, so she was in her early 20s and she was studying for one semester in the UK uh, for a degree in English literature. So kind of a nice you know, experience. I did that back, back when I was 21. I was in, uh, at Oxford for a while and mm-hmm. it was a nice experience. That's what she was doing. So she's very smart, very articulate, level-headed person. Um, and back then she said on many times she would take the train system in the southern part of the UK and she would go back from London uh, between London, Birmingham, and Swansea, which is toward uh, Wales. So then toward the end, she said either the end of February 1998 or the beginning of March of 1998, she has a very bizarre experience. So she gets on the train at, at uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, and she was bound for Swansea, Wales. Uh, it was around 5 or 6 p.m., she said, and she was in the middle of a commuter rush hour. So it wasn't surprising that she gets on this train and she sees a full car. Um, but then again, this car was very full. It, not only was every seat taken, but a lot of the people were standing and they were uh, clogging the aisles. So she gets into the car, and again, to her surprise, she sees one empty seat. So she sits down in that empty seat. So this is these are compartments. So each compartment is designed for four people, and the seats are uh, like facing each other. You know, you mm-hmm. can visualize that. Uh, so just to her left is a woman holding a newspaper, and she's wearing like a headscarf and gloves. Uh, she looked like she's maybe 50 years old. She looked as though she was having – had a long day at the office, and the woman looked northern European ethnically. Mm-hmm. So Lisa sits down. She greets her politely. Hello. How, how are you? The woman looks at her, she says, with eyes that were unusually large, unusually round, and with these brilliant colors – not hazel, but some kind of combination of colors that looked unusual. Uh, she had eyeglasses, but the she said Lisa said this is not the reason her eyes look crazy. <laughs> so her first response, so she faces Lisa. Her first response was this long, drawn out. She says, "Oh, <laughs> oh my, that's enough to scare you." <laughs> I know, right? Right, exactly. And then. Uh, she gives some kind of re- polite reply, which Lisa couldn't remember, but she had this odd accent. Even though they're, they're in Western England and they're very close to Wales, uh-huh. this woman spoke in a perfect Midwestern American dialect. In fact, this woman sounded exactly like someone from central Iowa, which is right where Lisa had grown up. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there was only one other seat on this car that was not occupied. It happened to be directly across from her. Now, there were bags and um, other things on the seat, and those belonged to a woman who's directly opposite the, this unusual lady that was just talking, so like diagonal from her, diagonal from Lisa. Now, this, this was a woman. She had dark curly hair, brown eyes, seemed a little more normal looking. She had unusual eyes, though. They, they protruded out. They bugged out a little bit. Very intense, very intense. So during the whole time that Lisa and this strange woman are, are chatting, this other woman 
is leaning forward. I mean, think of this is bizarre. Yeah. Obviously listening, obviously very attentive and curious. It's kind of unusual behavior. Mm-hmm. It just didn't seem normal. So she never spoke, but she kept moving her head and her mouth in ways that were odd. And then she would she looked at Lisa, and it was a very unsettling way that she looked at her. So now, she, now Lisa's looking around this car. She sees a young guy, maybe 30. He's standing. He's reading a magazine. He smiles at her, and he starts reading the magazine again. There's another guy uh, less than 10 feet away, one or two rows away in an aisle seat, and he's looking directly at her. He seemed ordinary, maybe mid-40s, bald, uh, paunch in his belly. Um, he's wearing a white T-shirt. He's got jeans, black leather jacket, no glasses. Now this is where things are really bizarre. She's looking at this guy's left index finger. Mm-hmm. And what she noticed, this is what she said to me. I noticed it was unraveling. I said, what? She says, well, his finger was unraveling. She said there was a seam in his finger, like cloth. I said, well, it was gloves, right? She says, no, it was not gloves. So she's, she's looking at this thing very carefully. And what she sees unraveling, it's, <clears throat> it wasn't like medical sutures, she said. Mm-hmm. But it was thread. She uh, said to me, look, I have excellent eyesight. This was not an ultra-tight fitting glove. I knew what I was seeing. The skin of this man's hand appeared to be very silky and definitely synthetic. Wow. Basically, she said he, was, he looked like he was wearing a human suit. Right. So they're looking at each other. He sees her. She sees him. And just like the, the two women in her booth, this guy had very unusual eyes, very unusual look in his eyes. Then he turns away and he's looking out the window. At this point, she's feeling lightheaded. And she said almost as if my brain were paralyzed. Uh, she started feeling physically ill. So she's thinking, what's going on? Did I just have a stroke was actually her Mm. question. And that's when she had this realization. This man was not human. The people around her in the train were not human. And she begins to feel panic, right? And so she decides, I'm getting off the train at the next stop. I don't care how far I am from Swansea, I'm getting off the damn train. So um, she's looking at the guy with the unraveling finger, and he's he's fidgeting. He's looking uncomfortable. So as the train comes to a stop, she's getting to her feet. But the guy beat her to it. In an instant, he gets up, and he's out of the train at the opposite end of the car. And she thinks, hmm, all right, I'm going to stay on the train. So she sits down. But um, things don't end here at all. So the guy's off the train. He's on the platform, and she sees him through the window. He's walking among the crowd. He sees her through the window. All right. Mm-hmm. He, and he's staring at her. And as he's walking by, he's holding his gaze at her. And now she's noticing other things. His clothes don't fit well. They were kind of out of proportion with his body. And his eyes somehow changed in a way that she couldn't tell. But she said they look different. And not only that, the scarfed woman next to her is also looking at this man. And as she's looking at this man, she has a newspaper in her right hand, and she's using the newspaper to block her face from Lisa's view, as if she's communicating with this guy. And, and the woman with the dark curly hair is also watching the man as he walks by. So now that... <laughs> I mean, this is it's like the twilight zone. It certainly is. <laughs> so I hope this is not going too long. So the no, train no, starts moving again. 
And the scarved woman turns to Lisa and she says, we've been here for many, many years. Okay. Now, Hmm. this did not, you know, at at the moment, I think, I think, our witness, Lisa, I think her head was in this fog because at the time she's thinking we like as in we the British have been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. But this this woman did not sound British. And but the this whole incongruity didn't really make sense at the moment. Years later, I mean, she she said to me, like, my God, I was so naive. I was so confused at the moment. I didn't really handle this right. Um, there was another follow up statement the woman made. Something having to do with being a star being or star child. This is how oh, really? Lisa years later. Yeah, but she couldn't remember it perfectly. Mm-hmm. So now they're coming up to the next stop. And she's, for whatever reason, she's not feeling as panicky. She's feeling okay, even though, she, even though she still believes that these are aliens on the train. She still believes that. Now the most amazing thing happens of all. Mm-hmm. So the train comes to the next stop. As it approaches the next stop, you got 30 or 40 people in this train, in this car, right? Everyone steps up in unison at the exact same moment. Every single person. Wow. Up. They are out of the car within seconds. This is like no jostling, no sounds. This is the most efficient, rapid, orderly exit from a train car that anyone could possibly imagine, much less execute. It was so fast. She actually didn't remember the two women leaving her booth, but they, they were they, – everyone, everyone left. She, and, this, and I have a quote. She said, it was the most organized, efficient departure from a train I've ever seen. Wow. So okay. during the, the exit, the man who she noticed earlier reading a magazine, he had, the guy had smiled at her. She noticed he was acting as a chaperone to the group. He was human. She was convinced of that. And there was a young woman who she now saw with the man – she said she believed they were human. But as the group filed past her, a few of them looked at her and they smiled. One with a goofy smile and weird eyes said hello. Next thing she knows, she's sitting in a completely empty train car. Yeah. yeah. Um, she couldn't see what direction they went. She didn't know if they stayed together. She didn't know if they went their separate ways. And, um, and then she had all these lapses of memory about this incident years later. I mean, she, she couldn't tell me like basic facts, like what train station they got off. And mm-hmm. she, she said like, maybe my brain was shut off. Um, Sound familiar, right? L- no, exactly. Like a psychic in, in Las Vegas. Last thing, yeah. last thing about this crazy story. So for the rest of her train ride, she said, for whatever reason, I put the event totally out of my mind. And she goes back, she's at her college dorm room. She changes clothes. She goes to like this rec area, recreation area, TV's on. And she said, that's when it hit me. Like, I was like, holy crap, what have I just gone through? There was another student who was a friend of hers and she tells him what just happened. And to her shock, he says, he took the story in stride. He said, well, I've heard rumors of a community in the UK that sprung up from nowhere. Uh, Maybe there's an ordinary reason for it, but maybe this is new real estate. He said, however... The people who lived there, he said, never opened their doors. They were never seen anywhere. Um, but she has no name of the town, no location. Nothing's ever been confirmed about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing. You could dismiss this as a paranoid thing of some of a, like a young student living in a foreign country. But when I met with her, I have to tell you, I spoke with her. On the spot, and then after the fact, after I came home, I chatted with her mm-hmm. in great detail. And um, 
very rational, very precise, very level-headed in everything. And um, that's her story. You know, yeah. it makes no sense. So, well, none of these do. And, you know, my, obviously my head is swimming now. I have so many thoughts, and, and obviously they will all be speculation. But, Richard, I think we're at the point right now where, you know, there's a part of us that wants some substantiation, some corroboration, some proof that we're living in reality, a form of reality that is just not what we think it is. And yet I think it's the anecdotes that you're telling and many more that are really going to show that, that, that there's a spectrum that we are intertwined with that is filled, teeming with intelligent life that is just, you can't ignore it anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of this woman and I'm thinking that the last story that you told them, like, well, okay, could there be, I mean, we've heard of the idea of uh, parallel dimensions and parallel realities, perhaps overshadowing ours on occasion. They may look somewhat like ours, but yeah. maybe a bit different and may have different inhabitants. I mean, there's so many ways you could go with this, but there are. This, there's the um, yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Continue. This well, is, there, there's the story of uh, you know a lot of people in, in in the fringe field kind of know of the Skinwalker Ranch, and there's yes. a very famous book about it. And um, that's out in Utah, and this is a place where it certainly does appear that there are some very uh, bizarre types of things happening there that appear to have an explanation that's like interdimensional. And if that is the case, then and there are some, mm. several other places where it looks like there are um, – it's not simply UFOs. It's not simply crypto creatures, bizarre creatures or ghosts, but it's all of these things and more. Mm -hmm. So that's one possibility. The other possibility with some of these strange encounters is simply that there are people who quietly live among us. Uh, for whatever reason, very quietly, um, not really wanting to uh, interact very much with general human culture, uh, keeping themselves separate for whatever reasons and for how long a period of time. And I think I do think that that's part of the answer. I think that there is a presence of uh, basically human-looking people. <laughs> yeah. I realize that someone has never heard this before. This sounds absolutely insane, but the problem <laughs> is that when you start hearing one account after another after another you have to wonder what what actually is happening absolutely these, yeah. yeah these people are being um very truthful and i think that they're intelligent yeah um, I, and yeah yeah i've had a few of the well i'm not going to say a few some I, i've speculated a little bit on a couple of people that i have uh, that have caught my attention that i've, I've mm. really really wondered about you know this whole idea you, you make a good point we it's very difficult to come up with a word richard to really uh describe what encompasses this we call it the field of ufos and we know it's so much bigger than that we call these beings ets and yet we sense that it's so much bigger than that we say that aliens are visiting i've always had an issue with the notion of aliens visiting this planet that, that seems somewhat like a misnomer the word visit never sat well with me and the fact that you're mentioning that perhaps they've always been sort of quietly sharing this space, if you will, with us, um, means that maybe they've been here longer than us. So there are just so many different um, so many different angles that we need to start to entertain. I agree. My, my, my current best theory is mm. that um, – I mean, first of all, I always try to distinguish between what I, I can confidently say I know and then what I, right. what I think. Mm -hmm. So what I know is that there's a phenomenon that uh, our military and other militaries have engaged. We know this because we have a document trail proving it, uh, phenomena that are not supposed to exist, objects that do things that are supposed to be impossible, but that's what they've been recorded doing. So that – that's not a suggestion. That's not a hint. That's proof. Something's happened. Um, 
However, um, on top of that, there are things that this is what such and such looks like to me. What it looks like to me is that we've been visited for a very, very long time. We say visited. Mm. We've, there have been others who have lived here for a long time. And, you know, in ancient society, I think it would have been the easiest thing in the world for them to be very quiet about it if they didn't want to interact with us in an open way for fear of dissolving our society, for fear of causing uh, all kinds of dissolution of the social structure. They could easily have been able to do that quietly. I mean, I, I encourage people to ask themselves, like, if you went back in time a mere 1,000 years, mm. only 1,000 years, to medieval Europe or China or Africa or wherever, how much could you tell people there about the world that we have without their heads just going pop right? Not much. or without the pitchforks and torches coming out. I mean, <laughs> basically, essentially nothing. You, not even that the earth goes around the sun. You really couldn't do that. So, um, and much less viruses or, or microbes or tectonic plates or the solar system or evolution or whatever. You wouldn't be able to get into any of these things. Um, and so now imagine an intelligence that's even beyond us, that's from elsewhere, that's visiting, how much could they tell us at any point in our history about the true nature of reality without our heads going pop? Right. Yeah. So I think for most of the time, they would be a very quiet presence, observing, monitoring, whatever. The, the, the change came in the 20th century when elements of our own civilization developed the ability to detect them. This is, I think, what happened. Um, Essentially, during World War II is when it really exploded. We developed radar, you know, electronic means of detecting anomalies. We, we ourselves were in the air for the first time in large amounts. Mm -hmm. So we had better visibility, better <clears throat> ability to notice things. Uh, we had better communication system, finally, where on a global scale we're able to communicate these things. It was all in the 20th century. And that's really when ex the explosion of sightings happened. Um, but but what you have is a human elite, basically a military and intelligence community that was able and has still been able to this day to be able to manage global media, global political institutions, academic institutions and the like to keep this subject marginalized from the mass of, of the population. Mm -hmm. So we're at this in-between stage where like some humans are in on it, but the majority of humans are not in on it yet yeah, officially. I agree. You know, you, we talk, you, what you're alluding to is the secrecy and how they've been able to keep this, at least they think, airtight. And yet it seems in, in some case in some sense they're they're in cahoots perhaps with some of these beings i mean i'm thinking of the three stories you just told and this sense of absolute secrecy on their part as well you know keep it moving nothing to see yeah. here and you know the, that same sort of it's almost like they're they want to be seen because they're so conspicuous and yet they don't i i don't know it's a bit of a that's a bit of a paradox as well right I, well my my take on these human looking um beings that have been encountered is that is that they are human and actually they are us but very possibly genetically enhanced or modified in mm. one way or another okay. um, this is only a theory but like pretend it's 10,000 years ago and you're an actual alien race and you're here but you want um, maybe you want your own supply of humans to work for you Mm -hmm. you know, so maybe maybe you happen to be over Norway at the moment. And you say, "Let's scoop these people up," <laughs> and you and you breed your own humans. Hey. I mean, how how hard could it be? You uh, enhance them, put some technology in there, you modify their genetics uh, so they uh, they look like perfect physical specimens, and they've got these telepathic abilities, and who knows what else? Yeah. 
and they would have as much in common with us as any alien. I mean, they would basically have – they look like us, but they would have very little. This is only a speculation, clearly, but – It's an interesting speculation. I mean, that brings up the whole issue of hybrid beings, and this is something that's coming up a great deal to the uh, extent that I've covered the UFO ET subject on my show. Uh, I've interviewed uh, both Barbara Lamb and uh, Australia's Mary Rodwell. Who've, oh, indeed. Yeah, just stellar work both of them have done. Um, and they have revealed some extraordinary stories of these multiple interactions with what they believe to be hybrid beings, which is, are we yeah. talking about the same thing? Are we, you know, what you're talking about, I think, is perfectly plausible. Can I use that word? I, that... Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, a, it's simply a theory. I have, you know... Uh, in lieu of, of of breaking into these places and getting the uh, getting an interview with head honcho, uh, or uh, I don't know how we're really ever going to know the true scenario, what's happening. But there are these other. I mean, to me, it makes more sense if you have a completely human-looking being. They are probably human, and um, but enhanced. Now they could be hybrids. Uh, you know, Mary Rod- Rodwell and Barbara, and also David Jacobs. Now mm-hmm. David's been putting out a new theory. Uh, and a, a new phrase he's put out called hubrids. Hmm. And uh, this is a new book I, I think is about to come out. But apparently his idea is that the newest hybrids are so human looking, they look exactly human, but they have just enough, uh, in his opinion, extraterrestrial or alien DNA that they have the capabilities that are still intrinsically you know, the telepathy, essentially the ability to get close to someone and mind control them and convince them of um, get thoughts into their head or even convince them to do things and so forth. That's, he says, the, the power that they have. This is his take on it. Mm-hmm. So he calls them hubrids, but they look human. The only uh, question that I have is how would that explain these human-looking aliens like the 1965 story that I got from that lady? Right. Um, right. That's- you know, were there, were there hubrids? At that time, I I don't really know what David would say about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, this brings up the the notion, the idea of our looking at time linearly, past, present, future, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, and maybe the possibility that there's been an overlap of time, that these hubrids, although they, they may now be, I don't know, they're now coming into uh, our reality, may have actually been here before, I, I, you know, not necessarily in a linear sense. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's, you know, the whole, all bets are off. <laughs> when we start talking about things right. like this, Richard, all bets are off, not just about beings, but about the nature of time, the nature of reality, the nature of dimensions. Uh, Alexis, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. you know, we think of space and time <clears throat> in a linear way. Our mm-hmm. common sense tells us time just goes like a river. Space just goes on forever. But of course, and that's what Isaac Newton's physics are really all about. But what we do understand mathematically in terms of modern physics is that that's actually not the case. Right. So space and time are a fabric. We call it the space-time continuum. They are, um, you know, according to um, whether it's uh, Christian theology or Big Bang th- physics, the universe has a, had a moment where time was created. Uh, you know, according to classical Big Bang physics, the Big Bang wasn't just a moment of a big explosion in space. It was the creation of space and time. In other words, there was no time prior to that, and which mm. makes no sense to our common sense. But <laughs> there you have it. There you have it. <laughs> so, which means if time has a point of beginning, that means it's a finite uh, thing in some form, which means is it possible to step outside of our space-time reality? 
yeah. in one way or another. I think that when people are engaging in remote viewing, for instance, of uh, you know, they're able to see things not only across space that we're not supposed to be able to see, but also sometimes across time. Uh, there are remote viewers who see the future or who see the past. So what's actually happening when they see these things? Well, I think my guess is that some part of us is able to step outside of our space-time reality. What part of that is that? Maybe ancient people had a word for it. They called it the soul. Yeah. That's as good a word as any. So I think that's, that's probably what's happening. And, and ordinarily, our common-sense reality keeps us penned into a certain way of looking at the world. But, um, you know, I think these other beings probably have a way of transcending that space-time reality that we're in. And so when we encounter them, we're at an inherent disadvantage. Mm-hmm. They can come into and out of this reality more easily, I think. Um, it would be like a fish trying to understand life on land, maybe. That's right. That's a good analogy. I Can't think really. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we may we may make progress doing it, but we may always have certain limitations. That may be the sad fact of the matter. Well, I think having conversations like this are certainly certainly my reason for wanting to have conversations like this is to start to acclimate people to the possibility. You know, people love to hear stories, but there are people that are having these experiences that have no venue to to go to either hear similar stories or talk about their stories. And I I really do hope that one day we start to consider this a part of our our fabric um because i think it's a, it's significant i think it's very significant um, totally agree uh, i think there will be a day that uh this type of subject will be out in the open a little bit more I, we call it disclosure i yes. think that that's the subject of one of my books ad after disclosure and i do believe that there will be a moment where this type of phenomenon is forced out into the public domain and we'll be able to talk about it in an open way and questions like this and phenomena like the, these humans who look like us but maybe not be like us, that will come out too. And I don't know if we'll ever get full knowledge of what's happening, but we'll have a better chance at it with mm-hmm. uh, with an acknowledgement that there's a, a true reality to the UFO phenomenon, yeah. which I think will happen. Yeah. Disclosure is a big buzzword for us uh fans of the ufo subject it really is and, it's and- one i i avoided it for years mm. for many many years I, I felt like i was dragged into it uh, <laughs> partly against my will but then i thought oh i'm gonna write about it <laughs> and you sure so. did and you've covered it end to end and in the volume has not ended yet <laughs> it's there's so much more oh no there's absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely. you know before we before we leave we're winding down a little bit i think we've got about 15 minutes left but you know on staying i, I just find this whole subject richard of these these beings these these anomalies mm. <laughs> that we that seem to look human um just incredibly fascinating and again i have a yes. feeling that they're far more prevalent than we may know you know what comes to mind are the black-eyed children are you familiar with that the story of the black eyed children and how they too uh, have been sort of uh, literally showing up on some people's doorstep with these same very odd characteristics. Uh, yes, I've heard of this uh, this phenomenon. In fact, I, I don't know how true it is. Uh, mm. I, I published a book recently mm-hmm. by a really fine author named Laurie McDonald called Help, excuse me, Help for the Haunted. Mm. And um, it's it's actually an unusual book for me to publish, but she did a nice job with it. It's about, about about banishing evil presences from your house, basically. But she has a section in there on black-eyed children, mm-hmm. and I found it very interesting. And she, I think, is in the same position I'm at. I, I think she's very ambiguous and uh, dubious as to whether or not it's a true reality. Um, 
But anyway, people can read about it there. The, the thing is, is, you know, what are the sources? Essentially, the story of the black-eyed children is that they, they will appear at your house and they need an invitation to come in. That's right. Like, they can't, right, they can't come in unless they're in, invited in. And yes, they supposedly have these black eyes. That's the thing. And um, if they come into your house, uh, basically that's supposed to be a bad thing. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of the specifics that apparently happened. Maybe you could you could tell me. Yeah, well, you know, that, those are those are some of the common characteristics. Again, this sort of odd mechanical behavior. These children will uh, knock you know, not uh, on a the way we normally would knock on a door, but it's just this consistent knocking. It's just a very, it's as if they're trying to mimic human behavior, but are not making the grade, you know. And, and right. the only reason why I bring it up is because these same sort of characteristics seem to be coming out with these stories. You know, another uh, thing that you're right, that's mentioned along with uh, many of these black eyed children stories is they need permission to come in. And, you know, it reminds me of a woman that I just actually interviewed a very, very quickly, a very normal day spa owner that I happen to know personally who revealed to me a regression experience she had 28 years ago and what she, get get ready for this folks, believes herself to have been uh, an alien in a previous life. That's not the point. The point is that she has had other anomalous experience, inc- including people that she believes to have run into uh, that looks human but weren't. But mm-hmm. again, um, uh-huh. y- you know, the, this idea of needing permission to get closer to the to her, she brings the same factor up as well. So there seem to be some common threads. Well, this is very that, common along yeah. with uh, you get into psychic phenomena and things like seances and, uh, and dealing with evil entities, yeah. uh, Ouija boards, things like that. The idea is that the entity needs permission That's right. to enter your life. So there's that common thread. The only thing that I would say regarding the stories of black-eyed children is I, – I, you know, I would encourage people researching this to be very careful and to source out these stories. Agreed. Agreed. I think, you know, we live in a strange world. Yes, I, I think that's really the case. Um, but the question is finding the original source of these stories is really an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will mention this. I guess you can call a shameless plug for one of my books. But in my, in my <laughs> You're last, allowed. You are allowed. Go for it. In my last book, which is UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, um, that's actually my attempt to do a complete book about the entire UFO phenomenon and all of its amazing mystery. One of the things that I do talk about is how to be a a decent armchair researcher in today's era, mm-hmm. how to uh, encounter stories and not get hosed by being uh, you know taken in by a hoax, uh, which is easy to do. So there's basic techniques that really anyone can apply in order to do some quick useful research on a claim. Uh, there's things like for images, there's uh, the reverse image search, which more and more people are learning about, but still a lot don't. This is a feature that Google has had since yeah, 20 years. Tell us about that, the, the reverse image search. Oh, this is very important stuff here. So yeah. like if you, um, if you on your Facebook wall, someone puts a, a photograph of a, of a skeleton of a, of a 15-foot giant, you know, this happened to me one time. Hmm. With a, <laughs> And they said, oh, my God, they're finding giants in, like, uh, you know, Tajikistan or wherever. Um, first of all, my initial skeptic meter goes off the charts. And I'm like, beep, beep, <laughs> let's look into this. <laughs> but what you then do is you, you, you save the image. You download the image to your hard drive. Then you go to the Google search bar, 
you go to just google.com and then you search for images you click image search right. right and then in the image search bar there's a there's an icon of a camera that's in there a lot of people don't even notice it hmm. you click that that allows you to upload an image from your hard drive and you drag that image into the search bar and what google will then do is they will find every other instance of that image on the web and tell you where it's from that exact image that exact image okay. no joke this wow. is incredibly powerful so then what you can do so then i mean that alone will actually help you to probably in most cases figure out where this what this thing it really is mm-hmm. but you can also search those images by date so you can arrange it you can you go into the advanced search features and you can search by date and you can find the first instance of where an image appears on the web. Mm-hmm. And when you find the first instance, you're really going a long way toward determining its authenticity it's and its authenticity. source. Uh, you can do the same thing with, with any kind of claim. So um, in my book, I use the example of something that people call Project Blue Beam, which yes. is the alleged alien and fake alien invasion that's going to scare the hell out of people and create a new world order. Well, I believe that there are false flags, and I think they go on all the time, and I think we live in an era of false flags, but I don't believe in the blue beam version of a false flag, and that's my own assessment. But I use the blue beam um, as an example of how to search this out. So I search, you search, you put blue beam in quotes, and you just search by date right. for the first instance in which a project blue beam appears on the web. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had web capability now for over 20 years so we're going back away turns out I, I found the first instance of reference to Project Blue Beam and it was in an evangelical publication in the early 1990s interesting uh, wow. Yeah, they, they quoted uh, it was a French Quebecois named Serge Monast who kind of originated the idea the original incarnation of Blue Beam was it was a fake second coming of, of Christ that would somehow uh, and like a fake, um, there are a number of other things in conjunction with NASA. It was a kind of a convoluted idea that this guy had. And it was all supposed to happen in 2000, and it didn't happen. And then that idea mutated into a fake alien invasion, and and that's what we get. But anyway, the, the idea is like for any claim, whether it's black-eyed children or anything, it's now possible for us to do search by date or uh, you know to get the source, the original source of a claim and. And these things can be done, you know, in five, ten minutes' time. Relating to that, that giant skull uh, that I was mentioning <laughs> Yeah, what <earlier>. happened? <laughs> what happened there? This is actually not on my wall. It was a message. It was a Facebook message which 90 other people were on. And I wrote back. I said, listen, all right, uh, I found the original source of this. And this, this skull was created in a 2004 Adobe Illustration uh, uh, contest. And here it is. Love it. And, and so, but the guy, this was the distressing part to me. I think he was, uh, he was from Eastern Europe. And um, he said, well, I'll take your word for it since I, I understand your stature, Mr. Dolan, and I'm sure you're right. And I said, hey, hey, don't believe me because you think I'm some big name in the UFO field, buddy. <laughs> believe me because I'm showing you the evidence that you yourself could have done with 10 minutes of work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you made me do it for you. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I, I say to people. You know, everyone has the ability to step up their game to some extent so that the next Facebook rumor that comes your way 
you don't have to get sucked into it and you don't have to just believe it out of hand. You actually, we all have the ability and I would say obligation to do some research before we copy and paste it for the next, you know, thousand people to read. Here, here. So well said. What a what a lesson, powerful lesson to end on. And we could clearly do a part two on on that in terms of how social media, et cetera, has really kind of just, yeah. um, what do I want to say, just proliferated the <laughs> forgiveness, well, it's tr- laziness. It's transformed. It's transformed uh, I, I know we are out of time, but like back in 1950, you know, the, the problem that a UFO researcher had back then is simply getting access to reports. You know, it was not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we have the opposite problem. Today we're in a, we're flooded with flooded. an overwhelming amount of data, a lot of which is is not legitimate. And so the biggest issue that a, a responsible researcher has, in my view, is uh, to be able to have some kind of effective filtering system. And that's tricky. It's in- inherently inexact. We're going to make mistakes, but we have to do our best. We have to do our best. Yeah, we have to always. do our best. And you know what? On that note, I'm going to leave the audience with a quote that I think many of you have probably heard me say before. This is my own quote and it says the following seeing is believing but experiencing is knowing seek to experience and you will never have to believe again richard dolan thank you so much this has been so much fun and i want to hear more stories (laughs) (laughs) i've developed a few good ones i know you have very much enjoyed sharing this time with you and your listeners alexis thank you so much and we hope to talk to you soon you bet. Hey, uh, last thing. If anyone wants to see anything that I'm doing here, richarddolanpress.com is have that my website. Up. Yes, we'll have Thanks all that so linked much. up. You guys all are right, awesome. Richard, thank you. Have a good one. What would make it possible to share the planet with those who only appear to look like us but are anything but? Are we traversing parallel realities that allow a myriad of beings to coexist along with us? How are they able to communicate with each other and to some of us by telepathic means? And perhaps most importantly, why do they feel such a need to act as super secret, well-heeled chameleons, never wanting to tip their hat as to who and what they really are? Certainly, there are more questions than answers when it comes to the UFO and ET phenomenon. I hope this conversation with Richard Dolan helped bring some insight into the multiple dimensions of a broad and complex phenomenon. If you'd like to learn more about the work of Richard, including his newest book, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, I urge you to visit his website at richarddolanpress.com. If you enjoyed this interview, you may want to check out my previous interviews with UFO researchers Barbara Lamb and Mary Rodwell by going to the show archives section of our website. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Conscious Inquiry. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.